Good morning. Great to see you. It's such a privilege to be with you. And uh, if I can get my notes to show up, I'll be in better place. It's, uh, it's a privilege to um, have this time with you. And uh, I'm so glad for Pastor Jim and his opportunity that you've given him to uh, do some writing and do some resting. And uh, I think the pattern of sabbatical is so important and critical in the lives of those that uh, serve constantly the church and serve Christ. And um, I think you are wise in that. Uh, I have been watching Super Road for many, many years. In fact, uh, I got to be on staff, so to speak, when uh, Super Road was on Wade Hampton Boulevard and had a different name and uh, got to be a part of this church in its early beginnings when I was in seminary. And it's been a privilege to watch how God has worked over the years and used this church as a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for the opportunity um, to share God's word with you. I wish my wife, Lynette, could be here. Um, she is finishing up quarantining from COVID. So I'm grateful for the health God has given to her. If you have your Bibles or your devices, turn, if you will, to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 will be looking at God's word from this passage. Colossians 4, I'll start reading from verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. I want you.
Could it be that God has a bigger reason for the challenge or the circumstance or the difficulty or the great moment you have right now? Could it be God has a reason for that? That isn't really about you. The Apostle Paul in this passage is in prison. He's falsely accused. He's in Nero's prison. And he's there because some Jewish leaders made some false accusations against him. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. And it may be you are in a circumstance right now in your life where you would say, it's not fair, it's not right. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But I want you to look at the passage again. What is the Apostle Paul praying for? If you were in prison unjustly, if you had been falsely accused, if you were in the kind of circumstance the Apostle Paul found himself in, and you were writing to a church, and you were trying to engage this church to pray for you, what was your prayer request to you? I know what mine was. It was the very thing that drove him. Because I think it's the thing that you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, often forgets. There's something more important in our lives. There's a calling that God has given to each of us. Matthew 28. You know it well. Jesus had gathered his disciples after his resurrection there, the mountain there in Galilee. And he says in verse 18, Jesus came to them, to his disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How much authority? All. He's in charge of the universe, he's the king. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make church services. Is that what it says? It says, go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Genesis 1, God told Abraham and or not Abraham, sorry, Adam and Eve. He told them, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Here Jesus says to his followers, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with disciples, followers of me. From the very beginning, Christianity has been a gospel way of life for the sake of those God brings into our life for the sake of those who are, we are rubbing shoulders with who do not know Christ. It is a, a commitment God has made for us. Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, has reconciled us to himself. 
and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What has he entrusted to us? This message. And what is the message? That God wants to be reconciled. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I'm very good at counting people's trespasses against me. Aren't you? Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is his desire? What is the message? What is the theme of our lives? What is the, what is the aura of our life? What is the fragrance of our life to be? A message. What should your neighbor know from us, from you? What should your coworkers know from you? What should your parents know from you? What should your children know from you? What should those people who have lives that are very divergent from your faith and walk with Jesus Christ, what should they know from you? That God wants to be reconciled to them. What is the means? Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus says in John 20, so send I you. So followers of Jesus, after their encounter there with Jesus, took the message, took up the cross, laid down their lives, and lived, story, lived a life to tell a story of love and hope and grace and mercy. And yes, the need of repentance and reconciliation. And the results are recorded to us in the book of Acts, which is amazing. In Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 4, but many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts 5, and, the more, and, more than every, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 6, now in these days the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 6, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Acts 9, so the church had peace and it multiplied. Acts 12, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Do you get an idea there of what's happening in Acts? There's a movement. What Jesus meant when he said to Peter, James, and John, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I think from time to time we need to remember 
we need to wake ourselves up to this very basic thing. That to follow Christ means to make disciples. To live for his kingdom. To declare the message that God wants to be reconciled with that neighbor, with your family, with your friends, with your community. When believers cease to practice that mission, Christianity ceases to be Christian and starts to become another religion with another king who no longer says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go make disciples. I can't follow Christ and be pursuing another kingdom. Christianity is, as someone said, a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, life-shining, heart-entreating, rescuing, missionary faith. Or it is not true Christianity. We need to be reminded of this because it's almost incredible how listless we can become in our calling as followers of Jesus. That little by little, our orientation becomes inward focused. And we can go for months, and we can go for years, simply viewing how we are compared to other people, rather than seeing those around us who have a desperate need. That lady at the checkout counter that neighbor that so aggravates you, that coworker that gets in your face, that parent that is frustrating, that marriage that desperately needs Jesus. We serve this new king, a king who has called us to make disciples. As American culture has become more and more hostile to our Christian values, we've had the privilege of living in this little window in history and this little window in place where we've gotten to be in a place that has encouraged our faith and now it's become more hostile to our values. And there are some in corners of the church that are saying the idea of being kind and winsome is now gone by its wayside. We need to stand up and fight create a sort of Christian nationalism. But we serve a different king who has a different mission than cultural Christianity. His mission and kingdom, true Christianity, is only spread by by a lack of coercion, not coercing people, not saying don't be involved in politics. But politics will never save a country. It's not law, but a changed heart that's needed. Even our American founders, though not all Christians, still understood the law was only maintained by a heart that it was right by a religious people. You may have seen this quote by John Adams, our first vice president, our second president, who wrote to the officers of the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Division of the Militia of Massachusetts, and here's what he says. We do not have a government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry 
would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Right heart, right government. Even Adams understood that. Our founders understood that. I want you to think about the people around you that you rub shoulders with who who have a politic that is different than yours, that have a lifestyle that is anti-Christian, who have views of religion that are very different from your Christian faith. Do you share the gospel with them? Do you establish a friendship in which to share your faith? Are you in proximity to them? Christ created welcoming environments. The holiest of all who walk this planet loved to have people around him who were different than him. That he got to speak the love and grace and truth of Jesus. Do you have people around you that you're rubbing shoulders with so that you can be obedient to the call God has given to every single one of us to make disciples? True Christianity thrives in environments where people believe other than what we believe, where it is not coerced or forced, but because we are growing as disciples and followers of Jesus and our relationship with God, because to have to follow Jesus means I have to be in relationship with him. Paul said in Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Our calling is to follow the king who has all authority in heaven and earth to be making disciples. It's not about a religious party. It's not about a political party problem with those kind of parties is you end up condemning others who don't toe the party line. We don't give them the message that reconciliation comes through trusting through Jesus Christ to recognize that we are sinners, to recognize the fact that we are broken, to recognize the fact we are desperate that apart from the work and grace of Jesus Christ, apart of him, apart from him, becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that is the only way we can be made righteous in him. But do we enter into the worlds and lives of people, loving, pleading, praying, loving them to a saving relationship with our King? Unfortunately for many in the church abroad, our focus is inward. We just go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until there's nothing left but a smooth-running program for doctors and nurses and their families. So in today's passage in Colossians 4, Paul is winding up his letter. He's been focusing on the relationship between believers within the church. Those relationships are critical, they're important, they're vital. But they're critical, important, and vital, not just for their own sake. 
but in light of this outward mission God has given to us. It's costly. It's why Paul's in prison. And what I find interesting as Paul is finishing up this letter is the critical importance of prayer and the mission God has given to us. Look what he says in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Keep at it. Pray. How you view your relationship with God will impart the real meaning to prayer. If prayer is just simply a mechanical, we talk to God and we try to listen to God as we're in, in his word, and if that's all it is for you, then you may be missing out on some aspects that prayer brings to us. Your view of God will will make a difference in how you pray. I want you to think about who is it you are praying to. For example, if you view God as your umpire, counting strikes and balls, then your prayer life is going to be more of a pleading with him. If God is your waiter who provides things for you, then your prayer is just simply ordering things that you would like God to do for you. If he's your buddy, then prayer is just casual. If he's an historical figure, then prayer is obligatory. But I want you to listen to what the Bible gives as a metaphor of our relationship with God that I think puts prayer in its proper perspective. Don't blow it off unless... You consider these passages. Isaiah 54. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. See, our relationship with God is like a love affair between a bride and her husband. Or consider Jeremiah 22. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me. Or Revelation 21, the church is described as a bride and Jesus as the husband. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Or Ephesians 5, as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. You see, with the marriage love metaphor as the context for prayer, how I pray changes. You might say that prayer is a conversation of a love affair, of a God who loves you. I want you to listen to this, these words. In fact, you may even want to close your eyes as you listen to these. Think about them. Is God your lover? He is perfectly faithful to you. He will never leave you. He is gentle and kind and patient with you. He's always looking after you. He is protecting you. He is defending you. He is providing for you. He knows your every need and he meets them all. He is always available to talk, but he's not pushy. He 
He gives you perfect gifts. He shares your sorrows and your joy. Even though you don't always treat him right, he is always gracious and merciful, forgiving, always willing to start fresh. He is your biggest fan. He wants you to succeed. He knows everything about you, your quirks, your dreams, your failures, and yet he loves you with an everlasting, sacrificial, unconditional love. He has laid down his life for you. I'm going to guess some of us struggle with receiving those words. My mind immediately when I read these words goes to Luke 15 where a father sees his son coming home and he runs to him. Grabs him with all the filth that that son had on him from the pig pen. Puts a new robe on him and has a party. And the elder son who's home keeping the rules is really angry at the father for this kind of love. It will shape how you pray. With a companion like that as the context for prayer, the content of my prayer changes. Did you hear that? With a companion like that as the context for prayer, how I pray, And what I pray for, the content of my prayer changes. My prayer becomes characterized by affection and trust and devotion and honesty and intimacy and freedom. It is changing. It does become holy, not as a mean to gain his favor, but because I have received his favor. Apart from any work I've done, I have a new identity. None I had anything to do with shaping. It is his grace. It is good news. It is the reality that I am a sinner, I am broken, I am desperate, and I am loved by God who gave himself for me. So what does this have to do with following Jesus on mission? What does this have to do with being a, making disciples in this world? What does this have to do with following him? Everything. Because how I view God's identity and how I view my identity in him will determine how I view others and the message I give to them. It will determine my posture toward other people. When I recognize That in spite of my brokenness, he's loved me. In spite of my failures, he's been faithful to me. In spite of what I have done against him, he's loved me. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I share with my neighbor who frustrates me and my coworker that I'm struggling with, with that person I rub shoulders with, is the same gospel I need today. Go back to the text. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. It's a single Greek word, proskartereo, 
It means to persist or stay by, to occupy yourself diligently, to pay persistent attention to, to prayer. It's used about 10 times throughout the New Testament, but Mark uses it in a very significant way. It has nothing to do with prayer, but listen to what it says here in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. He's, he's on the seashore. He's preaching. The crowd is growing. He recognizes that there's going to come a point. He's going to need to go out in a boat for, to create some distance so he can minister to the crowd. And so he tells his disciples, have the boat ready. And the word have ready is the same word in our passage, continue steadfastly. Jesus says, I want that boat to be devoted to me. I want that boat to be ready for me. I want that boat to, I want you to stand ready for me to step into the boat. I want you to stand ready to be waiting and receiving to me, to be attentive to me, to present yourself to me. Like the boat, prayer makes us ready for Jesus to step into our lives. For God to step in anytime, anywhere, any place. Prayer is putting myself in proximity to Christ for him to work in and through me. That's why I need prayer. That's why you need prayer. Prayer is putting yourself in proximity to Christ for him to step into your life when it's time. Be watchful. Don't drift. Alert with his priority, his mission. Watch for Christ wanting to step into your boat, into your moment, into your life. And prayer makes my life ready for him to receive that. And listen, in order for me to have proximity with others, I need to have proximity with God. And one of the components that is often missing in our making of disciples, in our reaching our community and our world, is that we are not in proximity to God in order to be able to reach them. And even the great Apostle Paul understood how critical that was. Be watchful in it. Be ready with thanksgiving. Why am I thankful? Because God has done something for me I could not do on my own. God has loved me in spite of the fact I've been unlovely. God has given himself for me even though I had nothing in my life deserving that. I am thankful and that thanksgiving is critical and important both for my praise to God and my understanding who I am in him. But it's also critically important because as I share the good news that God wants to be reconciled with those people that he has put in my life, I want to do it from a posture of gratitude that God has loved me. And Paul asks for two things in verse 3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Think about Paul, bold, audacious, in your face. But what is he asking? He's saying, I want you to talk to God for me, and I want you to ask him to open doors for us, that God would create opportunities for the gospel to be heard. 
in response to your prayers, that he will open doors so that he can minister through me. He will do that. Because when God steps into the circumstances of my life, some of them may be great circumstances, but some of them may be difficult circumstances. But he will cause even imprisonment and even beatings along with an earthquake. Remember the Philippian jailer? Why were Paul and Silas in proximity to a Philippian jailer? Because they had been beaten unfairly, unjustly. They had been thrown in prison unfairly and justly. That was their circumstance. But rather than working and focusing on the injustice of all of that, rather than saying, I didn't deserve this, I didn't earn this, it shouldn't have happened to me. What are they doing? They're praying and they're praising God. And an earthquake comes and they have an opportunity to reach a jailer and his family. And who knows beyond that in Philippi. Think about the unbelievers in your life that you regularly rub shoulders with. When's the last time you prayed that God would open a door for you to speak a word into their life? To declare the mystery of Christ. That perhaps the reason you're in the circumstance or difficulty or challenge you're going through right now in this part of your life is because God has a bigger story he is writing. He's letting you be a part of it because he desperately is concerned for the hearts and lives of people to come into relationship with him. He wants to be reconciled. And when we understand our identity in Christ, when we understand his love and grace for us, who we are in him, we become a tool for the gospel of Christ. Have you considered that the difficulties you are facing, God might be leveraging because there is someone in your life that needs Jesus? Or is it just about you? Prayer is a conversation with God that readies the boat of my life for Jesus to step in to open doors, circumstances, so that I can have conversation with others about the good news. I was pastoring, been pastoring for almost 40 years. We recently moved here to Greenville. And six months ago, seven months ago now, I got diagnosed with Parkinson's. Jesus and I had a lot of conversation. It was not the story I was writing. It was not the, it was not the thing I would want. It was not the difficulty I wanted to face. And it was humbling and it was difficult. But it's put me into contexts and relationships Whereas as I step back, I go, I never would have, I never would have had the opportunity to share Christ 
apart from the affliction, and that maybe the only reason for that affliction is that one I got to share with, or that neighbor I get to have a relationship with, or my trainer who's coaching me, or the gym I get to be a part of. What circumstance may God be working in you? But notice something else in Paul's plea for prayer. Verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He prays that God would open the door, and that when he opens the door, he'd have the courage, as he said in Ephesians 6, and clarity, so that God would work in him. Prayer is a conversation with God that readies my life, the boat of my life, my circumstance, for Jesus to step in, to open doors so that I can have the courage and the clarity with others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Literally, those who stand outside that are disconnected from the faith, from the fellowship, who don't know Jesus. Be wise in how you minister to them. It's not about treating them as outsiders because I need the same gospel that they need. But as Proverbs 11 says, whoever wins souls is wise, or literally, whoever captures souls. This is a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual battle for the hearts and lives of people around you. And he has put you in proximity and in relationship with people to capture their hearts. To be reconciled to God. How are we to capture the hearts of people? What does a lover do? How does Christ capture us with his words, with his affection, with his life, with the truth of his word with the reality of my brokenness and need for him. So the goal is wisdom to lead me to relationship with Jesus Christ. The role is that I walk in wisdom with those that don't know him. As he says in Thessalonians 4, but we, are, we urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly in wisdom before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Notice he says, listen, work hard, be competent, don't meddle, don't be lazy, don't be dependent on others for your livelihood. In other words, don't give people an argument that Christianity makes people lazy or nosy or incompetent or unproductive. Walk in wisdom. As he says in Titus, adorn the gospel. Our lives are to be demonstrations of our message, reinforcing God's grace and love and mercy by living in grace and love and mercy to those that are outside who don't yet know him. It means creating space in our lives and in our midst for those who yet have yet to know Christ to rub shoulders with us, to be with us, to even serve together with us, to engage with them so that they can experience Christ's grace and truth in your life and in your words and in the message. So Paul pleads that doors are open, that courage and clarity are given, that we walk in wisdom so that our friends and family are reconciled to God. Would you like that for them? 
those around you, would you like that for them? Are you letting Christ's word dwell in you richly? Are you praying for opportunities? For God to open doors? So that when Jesus chooses to step in, my life is ready to receive him? That he would open doors? So that this incredible message that God has given to us, that he wants to be reconciled, to those around us. He says making the best use of time, buying up the time, investing in the moment. Making the most of this opportunity to give people around you the good news of Jesus. Do it wisely. And then verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. Make sure your message is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Make sure your message is mixed with divine grace, speech that is always gracious and winsome, seasoned with truth. In fact, all of our social media should be that way. All of our conversations should that be that way. Always gracious. Especially when it comes to our message and our answers to people's questions. Because people are going to be asking questions. Listen, sharing the gospel is not just about you talking. It's about you listening. It's about you asking questions. It's about you engaging with people around you and giving them gracious answers, even if you don't like or feel comfortable with the questions. You see, prayer puts me in proximity to God that makes my life ready for Jesus to step in, to guide the best use of my time, which will put myself in proximity to others so that Christ can open doors, giving wisdom and encourage and clarity to answer their questions with the truth and grace of the gospel. Why does Paul assume that people are going to have questions that need to be responded to? Because a life and faith of a follower of Jesus is not determined by a list or pretending or an event or place you go to by a person who has fully accepted their brokenness and sinfulness and desperate need for Jesus, who at the same time is no longer shaped by that sin, but by their new identity in Christ, and they're pursuing him and loving him and knowing him. And that same person who isn't consumed by the idolatry of sexual passions or covetousness, or who aren't controlled by their anger or their speech, They are not slandering others and they're not full of cursing and obscene talk who tells the truth and does it with compassion and kindness and grace, who lets the word of God dwell in them, who has the kind of marriage and home that Paul describes and works at school or in business or as an employee or overseas employees as if she or he is working for God. People will have questions. Why Do you act that way? 
Why are you that way in the life circumstance you are in? Here's the freedom of it all. As I'm in proximity to Christ, he makes the decision when to step into my circumstance. He's the one that changes hearts. But if I'm in proximity to Christ and I put myself in proximity to others who don't know Christ, when Jesus is ready, he will step in and he will give you the word and he will give you the clarity and he will give you the wisdom to speak about a message of reconciliation that you've received that in spite of your brokenness and sinfulness, he has loved you and brings you into relationship with him. Are you ready? There's a whole community around us that you rub shoulders with. Wouldn't it be a delight to see the baptism busy with your friend, your neighbor, your coworker? person you rub shoulders with that you've been praying for and by putting yourself in relationship with Christ and in relationship with them you've had the opportunity to speak the word of Christ to them and Christ has broken and opened their heart to him and you got to be a part of the story the story's not about you So what circumstance do you find yourself in? What unbelievers are around you in that circumstance? And are you in proximity to God? And are you in proximity to those who have yet to know him? Are you ready? Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's why we're here, folks. The king has laid down a mandate for us. He has told us what it means to follow him. Let's go make disciples. Let's be a part of the journey and part of the story God is writing a privilege to be a part of that with him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed just for a moment, I have to ask, do you know him? Has there come a point in your life where you recognize you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, that no list, no no activity, nothing you do on your life brings you into relationship with God. He is reaching out to you right now. He recognized, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I deserve God's judgment. But I know he became my sin for me. God put my sin on him on the cross. He died and rose again. I'm giving my heart and life to him right now. Would you do that? 
Would you just declare him as your Lord and your God and your Savior? Would you confess the fact that you are a sinner that needs him as a Savior and receive that? Many of you have received that message and it has been your hope for many years. But there are people around you that need him. Who is that person or who are those two or three people that God, while we were talking this morning, put on your heart? He may be pushed away a little bit at it, but he was putting them on your heart and saying, I want you to pray for, who is that? My encouragement to you this morning is before this day is out, that you would sit down and write out a name, two names, three names, that you would begin praying right now. Say, Lord, open a door. I'll make my life ready for you to step in. Open a door that I might declare to them that God wants to be reconciled to them. Father, we are so grateful for the hope we have in you. Lord, you've given us this mandate that what it means to follow you is to make disciples but we do not do it alone. You said you would be with us as we do this. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that, Lord, all of us would have those people in our lives that we are praying for, that we are asking you to open the door of opportunity into their life, for you to step into that moment, into that circumstance, into that conversation. And that with clarity and boldness and wisdom, we would speak the good news of Jesus to them. And that you'd bring them into relationship with you. May that be a story we hear over and over and over again. And I pray if there's anyone here that has given their life to you today, Lord, that they would speak to um, one of the pastors or one of the leaders here today. And I pray for anyone in our sound of our voice that has yet to know you. That they would come to the realization that there is a God in heaven who is holy and righteous and demands justice. And that his son Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. And you poured all of that justice and wrath on him. So that by trusting in him. And what he did, we could be righteous in you. And may we walk in the grace and the mercy of that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.